Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, this morning, church family, we have the privilege of continuing our series in the book of Lamentations. And um, so if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to get them open to the book of Lamentations. This morning, we're going to be journeying into a new chapter in the book, Lamentations chapter 4. And so I'll let you turn there. Um, I heard it said once, a quote, um, and I think it's so true for us to understand and believe the heart of what this quote is all about. So the church was never meant to be a museum for the saints, but rather a hospital for sinners. Much of my life growing up, um, as I engaged with church life and religion, as I attended Sunday service and interact with other Christians, um, I felt very compelled uh, to be a good boy. That church was a place where I needed to have it all together where I needed to have the external appearance of morality and Christ-likeness. And yet there was a very different thing going on on the inside. I knew that I was really broken. I knew that I was really messed up. Um, But I didn't know how to square with what I felt on the inside and what I felt like was expected of me on the outside. I don't know if you've ever felt that way or maybe even today feel that way. And you've come in here and you're wondering, like, can I really be honest about where I really am What does it look like to do something other than just give a fake smile or a kind of small answer? Yeah, I'm great. What does it look like to be honest, to really be open, to be very transparent about what's going on on the inside? The book of Lamentations and the particular season and series that we're in, we've been inviting greater honesty from you, from each of us, from us as a church corporately, honesty about how hard things can often be in life. We've talked week after week. Some, some people, when uh, we first announced we were gonna be doing a whole fall Lamentations, they're like, wow, what a downer, right? Like, great, three weeks, I mean, three months of just, life sucks. Like, things are terrible. Um, and we didn't pick, you know, the series to be a downer. But we did choose to to explore this book of the Bible, which I really believe has been often overlooked in churches, and I'll just own it. We've overlooked it in our church. And we've been saying, you know what, there's something that God has for us in this book, as he does in all of scripture. All of it is God-breathed. All of it is profitable for us. There's something to be learned in sitting in this particular book, and, and, and learning what it looks like to journey with God in the hard, in the difficult places and spaces of life. To really learn what it's like to be open and honest with God and with community about how difficult life often is. The questions that swirl, the frustrations that happen, the complaints in our heart. So, Again this morning, we're going to be diving back into this book. 
And today we're in the eighth week of the book, believe it or not. Can y'all believe that? We are in the eighth week of this study. And today's sermon is called Unearthing Idols. And we're going to be from here from Lamentations 4. To frame it, uh, I want to just basically remind you, if you haven't been here, um, you can go back and listen or watch to any of the previous seven weeks. And I would highly encourage you to do so. But I, I want to give a brief overview of what lament is and what it's for. Like I just said, life is hard. Pain is real. The world is broken. Um, part of what was on our heart for picking this series in this particular time is it seems like this year in particular, there has just been a lot of suffering that we have gone through as a people, particularly here in Memphis. God has called us to merciful and missional presence here in our city, loving this city and the people of it one neighbor at a time, but it has been a difficult season in our community. The sirens wail almost every night. I heard them last night. You can hear gunshots on almost every corner of the city. Broken glass on South Main, again, just this past week. Cars stolen from the neighborhood, again. We can all probably tell personal stories or personal stories of someone that we know who have had a hard time lately in this city. It's a hard time in the world, look at it. I mean, it's hard not to feel, right, the brokenness by just turning on the global news. What's happening between Russia and Ukraine? What's happening right now with Palestine and Israel? This morning, having to see the news of troops going into the hospital to rescue newborns because there's no electricity and newborns are dying without the care that they need. How, how do you cope with realities of suffering so deep, tensions between tribes and peoples that are, are so old that you just wonder, how will these things ever be resolved? H how do you deal with the, the, the tensions over some of the economic uncertainties? This past week, several of our members talking to us pastorally about some of the things going on in their workplaces or having to lay off people or having to figure out the future for 2024 because things feel so uncertain. It seems like we're at the verge of something that could be or could not be really bad financially for us as a country or for us individually. Brokenness, uncertainties, pain, hardship. It's been a hard season. And if you're honest about your own story, I mean, who in the room would raise their hand and go, you know, everything has just gone perfectly for me in my life? There hasn't been a single moment where I've wished for a different outcome. No, our, our, our personal stories reflect the reality that things, things are hard. Even as Christians, we have to embrace the reality that following Jesus, even following Jesus involves suffering. Sometimes it's because of our trust and faith in Jesus and our call to obedience in him that we take on sacrifice and we take on a willingness to suffer. The need for lament is real because in some days, in some seasons, there are more questions than answers. There are more tears than smiles, more valleys than mountaintops, more seeming darkness than light. There are some days and some seasons that we feel empty, we feel disillusioned, we feel discouraged, where we hurt. 
We feel alone and we ask big questions. What am I supposed to do with this? If that is you today, I want to invite you again to lean in to this book of Lamentations, to lean in to a God who wants you to know that he sees you, he knows what you're going through, he cares deeply for you, and he wants to invite you near. In fact, lament, what we've learned is how we bring our sorrows to God, right? So just to understand lament, just as a reminder, lament is the biblical pathway for us to engage God in our grief. So learning lament is a hugely important opportunity for us because it's in learning lament that we get to go to God and we get to hold space for like this morning, God, I'm grieving over newborns dying because of a conflict that they had nothing to do with. God, I'm tired of gunshots on my street. God, I'm tired of innocent lives being taken. Lord, I'm burdened by what's happening in the country. God, I'm confused about what lies ahead. It's a biblical pathway for us in these personal and practical things for us just to go to God and to have space with him and our griefs. So in lament, we lay out our pain, we lay out our questions, and we lay out our struggles before God. Now, if you've got notes, here's my challenge, all right? We've been away from lamentations for a few weeks. What I want you to do is flip back through your notes and make sure that you got caught up with where we've been, all right? We've been basically focusing on a principle a week as we've learned lament together. So week one, we learned that in lament, we can bring our brokenness to God. And week two, what we learned is that in lament, we have opportunity to bring our complaints to God. And week three, we learned that in lament, we have opportunity to bring our confession to God. In week four, we learned in a lament, we have opportunity to bring our submission to God. In week five, we learned that in lament, we have opportunity to bring our desperation to God. In week six, we had opportunity to learn that in lament, we can bring our trust to God. And last time we were in Lamentations together, we learned that in lament, we bring our expectancy to God. So everybody caught up? You got all those in your notes? Well, this morning, we're making progress. You ready? This morning, we're gonna be in week eight. It's called Unearthing Idols, and this day, we get to add a new principle to lament um, and our journey in it, and it's this. It comes straight from the title, in lament, we bring our idols to God. In lament, we bring our idols to God. If you've got your Bibles, Lamentations, chapter four, and I'll start reading in verse one. We're gonna read the whole chapter. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious stones of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, 
the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and, has, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. But now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is God's word. This morning, I want to talk to you about Unearthing idols. 
And in a strange way, I want you to invite you to consider how pain in our life can sometimes be a really helpful teacher. I want to invite you into a conversation that's really more like an exploration. If you're willing this morning, and I don't know if you're willing, but if you're willing this morning, I invite you to just allow God to explore your soul, to really do some work deep within you, to uncover for you some things that pain and hardship might be exposing. What's the big deal about idolatry, all right? So it seems kind of funny that we're talking about idolatry from Lamentations 4 because the word idolatry is not even in the passage, all right? Anybody see the word idolatry in there? No, um, it's not in there. Why are we talking about idolatry? Why is that the title of today's message? And didn't idolatry end like a long time ago with the little statues and stuff? All right, well, here's why we're talking about idolatry this morning. Um, idolatry is a really helpful way of understanding sin. It kind of gives a word picture for us of like what is going on in our hearts when we sin. So the root of every single sin is idolatry. All right, I'm gonna do some groundwork before we dive into the passage and, and study it together. And I hope if you're taking notes this morning that you consider even starting here. Because one of the things you have to understand about sin, the Bible says that all of us have sinned, that none of us is righteous, no, not even one. The Bible asks you to recognize as a starting point of relationship with God, it's required to recognize that you are a sinner. You have sinned against God, and there's a consequence for your sin. What is sin? What do you mean I've sinned against God? Well, one of the things that may help you to understand what the Bible says, and the Bible says you have sinned, and you need to own that, is understanding that at the heart of every sin is idolatry, all right? Where do you get that, Pastor Barrett? Well, I'll take you to two basic understandings of this. Uh, one is in the Old Testament, the other is in the New Testament. One is from Exodus chapter 20, all right, when God gives the basic 10 commandments. Most people have heard about the 10 commandments, these basic set of principles that God says, if you want to know me, you want to know my ways, you want to know my will, write this down. And he gives 10 simple instructions. Well, the first one, perhaps the most important one. Because in Exodus chapter 20, verse three, the first commandment, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, he's saying, I am meant to fill your heart completely. You are meant to find all of your satisfaction in me, all of your security in me, all of your hope in me, all of your identity in me, all of your trust in me. I am meant to be your everything. 
And there should be nothing else in your heart, nothing else in your life that should take the place of me. I am meant to be your God. I am your God. Therefore, put nothing else in front of me. Now, when something else creeps in, say, you know what? Like, you know God said that, but if you do this, you'd be really happy. You know, God said that, but you probably need this to feel really secure. You know, God said that, but really, you need to hope in this for life to have real meaning. When those things begin to creep in and steal from us total love and loyalty to God alone, that is idolatry. So idolatry is actually hearing this command. You shall have no one else filling your heart and life other than me and yet trying to fill our heart and life with other things. That is, in essence, in very basics, that is breaking the first commandment and that is idolatry and that is sin. The other passage I'll take you to is from the New Testament and it's from Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one is very helpful in us understanding idolatry, verses 21 to 23, right before this. He says, look, everybody in the world knows that there's God. All you gotta do is, last night I was driving. Did y'all see the sunset last night? Beautiful. Um, posted a picture on Instagram. I don't know, it was just like gorgeous. You look up at the sky and you're just like, wow, I heard a podcast this week with Elon Musk. He was talking about with all of his uh, SpaceX stuff and all the exploration that he's had privy to see and understand. He literally was saying, as you get into creation, that there was a direct question asked to him, uh, what do you think that there's a, some being out there, some creator out there? And he goes, if you get into creation, what you, what you see is it's, it's undeniable that there is, there is some being that has created all of this. And creation speaks of a creator. That was fascinating. He's genius. He's had opportunity to explore all this. And yet he understands it all points to creator. Romans 1 says, yeah, everybody can understand that God exists they can know that he's there and something about him and that our lives are owed to him. And yet, although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God. And they didn't give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the essence of idolatry. They exchanged. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That exchange, even though I know God to be this wonderful and worthy of my all, I'm gonna put him to the side and I'm gonna pursue all this other stuff. When you begin to make that exchange, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. You don't need a statue for that. All you need is a deceitful heart for that. When your heart begins to desire other things, to delight in other things, to trust in other things, to go after other things than God, the Bible looks at you and convicts you. God goes, do you see what's happening? You're exchanging the wonderful gifts that I want to give you 
for created things. And that exchange is idolatry. And that idolatry is sin. The heart of sin then, here's some things for your notes, ready? The heart of sin is rejecting God and desiring other things in his place. That's the heart of sin. If you can understand this, you can understand why it's so important for us to deal honestly with our sin, both as we begin a relationship with God, but also as we continue in a relationship with God, because our hearts are always doing this. We are always tempted to reject God and to desire other things in place of God. This is the heart of sin. So to understand an idol, here's how you can understand it. You can make a little list. An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Anything in your life, where it's a person, whether it's money in your bank account, whether it's your promotions, I don't know what it is for you. Some secret habit. Anything in your life that is more important to you than God, the Bible labels as an idol. Another way of understanding an idol is this. Anything that absorbs your heart and absorbs your imagination more than God. Anything that you're chasing after more than God himself. And for some of us, it's the screens. Look at the amount of time that you pursue chasing after God and spinning in his word versus the amount of time you pursue on this phone. It could be easy to go, well, whatever it is that I'm doing here could be absorbing more of my thought life, more of my imagination, more of my passion, more than God. If you're passionate about something else in life more than you're passionate about God, the Bible says that's idolatry. Another way of understanding idolatry is this. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. Anything that you're turning to, to go, oh, I'm gonna find blank in this. And yet, you're not turning to God for that. That also is a way of understanding idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, who's done a lot of work in uh, idolatry, says this. He says, at the heart of all of our sins is the problem of idolatry. We can't understand our own hearts until we identify their reigning idols. So in other words, it would behoove you, it would really benefit you to spend some time taking that list of things that I just gave you and to really allow God to examine your soul. Like the psalmist says in 139, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just allow that to happen. So what's, as we think about idolatry this morning and the title of today's message and what we're looking at here in the text, here's the deal. It's a big deal, right? Idolatry is a big deal. Now, Lamentations 4, I told you the title of today's message is Unearthing Idols. Why are you starting the sermon on Lamentations 4 this way? Why are we talking about idols? It wasn't even in the passage, the, the, the word idol, idol or idolatry. Why are we talking about this? Here's why we're talking about it. Because hardship reveals idols. Hardship in our lives has a way of actually bringing to the surface the very things that we have turned to other than God himself. 
When life falls apart, it can be revealing. Pain, in the words of Mark Vargrup, who wrote Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, can be an uncomfortable but helpful teacher. Hardship reveals idols. And one of the things that you can hear as chapter four of Lamentations is being voiced is you can hear in the words of the lament, Jeremiah, on behalf of his people, actually naming, God, we've looked to this and now, now it's been stripped from us and we see it for what it is. He's naming as he's going through this lament He's actually exposing the fact that, yeah, like, we see it now. At one time, it, our, 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 our eyes saw it as this, and our hearts chased after it as this, but now that's been laid to waste, and, and we see it now. God, you've gotten our attention. I know in my own life, even before we go through this text this morning, I, I can tell you, suffering sucks in and of itself, but sometimes suffering the pain of it is deepened because in the midst of suffering, the things that are uprooted from our lives, the things that are stripped from us are things that our hearts really depended on, that my heart has depended on. Things that I have looked to to give me something that really I should have only been looking to God for and suddenly those things are taken away. Dang, that hurts. Has anybody ever been through experience like that? Dang, it hurts. Hardship reveals idols. So I want to walk this morning five idols that I see revealed here in Lamentations 4. We're going to walk through them quickly. And then at the end of the sermon, what I'm going to invite you to do is to not only understand what's being revealed here from the text, but to really be honest with God and your community about the specific idols that hardship is revealing in your life. Because we'll look at what's being revealed here in the people of Israel, but I believe there's some things that God's trying to reveal in your heart and life to get our attention, to unearth these things that there might be greater grace and opportunity for wholeheartedness with the Lord. Our main point this morning, uh, if you've got something to write with, Our main point this morning is this. Oh, well, I think I may have deleted this slide, so please forgive me. <laughs> Don't look at this. Listen to what I say. This is going to be a challenge. You guys are so used to me putting everything on a slide for you. Listen to what I say. This is going to be unhelpful. Here it is. Hardship reveals idols. That's the first one. Some of y'all have already written that down from what I put on the screen earlier, but I actually included it at the start of the main point. Hardship reveals idols. The next sentence is this. There's only one more sentence in the main point. In lament, we mourn our misplaced trust. In lament, we mourn our misplaced trust. And... We ask God to return our whole hearts to him. 
Hardship reveals idols. And in lament, we mourn our misplaced trust and we ask God to return our whole hearts to him. Let's walk through the text. I want to show you these five things that they were dealing with and then I want to ask you to deal with your own things. So let's start with number one. The first thing that they were dealing with, hardship revealing idols, is this. They were dealing with having to to wrestle with the fact that they had trusted in money. That's number one on their list. And it could be that this one is also on your list. Hardship reveals idols. I believe there's a screen for this. Number one is money. If you look at verse one, this is where I get this. Really, it could be verse one and two, but we'll stick here with verse one. How the gold has grown dim and the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Listen, y'all, city of Jerusalem was at one time the economic spiritual center of Israel before this time where they were thrown into exile. Temple rose up, sparkling gold, amazing architecture, crazy wealth and jewels. The Ark of the Covenant was there in the walls of the sanctuary. Everything in that place was just like shining like diamonds. Beyonce would have been jealous, all right? I mean, you're talking like the, the pinnacle of exuberance, display of great treasure and wealth. And now, here they are in exile, and verse one says, how the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. These things are just lying on this street, scattered. So recognition that their hearts had gone after something that really was not an ultimate thing. You guys, uh, it probably goes without saying, money, especially right now in this economic time, money can be a common idol beneath the surface of our lives. It's so easy for money to become an object of trust. That's why um, when uncertainties come, like economic uncertainties, or when we start, when we lose a job, how suffering can be even more exacerbated. Because it's something that we easily can trust in. It can provide power to us, or a sense of security to us, or identity to us. It gives us options, it gives us image. It can make us feel that we're self-sufficient, which is why when you get into a recession, or you lose an income, or your business fails, or you've got a city that starts hemorrhaging economically, it gives you an opportunity to, to, to actually see for what it is, like maybe we've trusted in money too much. It's exactly what has gone on in the people of Israel. Jesus talks about this explicitly. I think about the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector who was infatuated with money. He robbed people, essentially. He sold out his own countrymen to be able to get rich through extortion, essentially. And Jesus warns people again and again and again. He warns you, be careful about loving money. Be careful about trusting money. If you do it, 
it will become your master. And sometimes it takes suffering to loose us from the idol that money is. It's exactly what happened when Jesus showed up at Zacchaeus' house. He singled him out. He called him out. He exposed his heart for what it is. People were frustrated that Jesus went after him because he was a sinner. People hated him because he was robbing everybody. And yet he chose to go to Zacchaeus' house that day. And you could see as he entered in relationship with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus realized money's not what his heart's made for. It's not the purpose. It shouldn't be the purpose and overriding passion of his life. It's no longer what he should live for. And you can see Zacchaeus turn around and essentially divest himself willingly before the recession hit, before he lost his job, he willingly divested himself of his resources, giving to the poor, paying back people four times over who he had cheated. It's a displacement of that idol. Zacchaeus freed from that idolatry. I wonder in our lives, as we go through suffering, is God not trying to get our attention that maybe we've trusted too much in our salaries? Maybe we've trusted too much in our credit cards. Maybe we've trusted too much in our stocks or in our savings accounts. Maybe we've trusted too much in our jobs. Sometimes suffering has a way of getting our attention. And for the people of Israel, God got their attention that at one time, they had trusted too much in gold. And now that it was gone, they're seeing their hearts, they're seeing their trust, their hope for what it is. And God's inviting them, come back to me. Could be inviting you to do the same. Number two, the second thing that was revealed to them was their misplaced trust, their heart idol of people. Number two is people. People. They had hoped too much in other people. If you look at verse two, verse five, verse eight, look at it. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they're regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. In other words, these people who had once valued and esteemed, now, now just broken and, and torn from me. Verse five, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Verse eight, now their face blacker than soot. They're not recognized in their streets. The skin is disheveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. People who they had once regarded, once they had trusted, once they had esteemed, once they had put so much of their trust and hope in, now gone. Listen, it is possible to place too much trust on other people. Did you know that? It is possible in life to pin too much of our hope on other people. You can so easily make another person in your life, even a good person, a godly person, you can make them an idol. People are meant to be good gifts in your life, but no person in your life is meant to take the place of God. No person in your life can give you what only God can give you. And you go looking for another person in your life to give you more than God can give you and you will be disappointed and you will make them frustrated. It is possible to put too much hope on other people. 
There are limitations to what humans can give us. And there's a danger when we put too much expectation on others. Even a good friend, even a spouse, even a beloved brother or sister in Christ. They can be helpful in walking with us through pain, but they will never be able to completely heal our heart. Other people were not meant to fill us. God and God alone is meant to fill us. And you can hear in the lament, oh, these, these people, these precious ones, who, who, who once were like everything to us, now like, they're gone. Now the relationships have changed. And it's the suffering, it's in the suffering that there's clarity, that these things are being unearthed. And there's an opportunity for Jeremiah to go, we've placed too much hope in them. Feels like in our society, gosh, it's so easy um, to be so desirous for love from another that we just go from one ruinous relationship to another. So desperate to not be alone that we literally sacrifice everything else for the opportunity just to have our hearts filled by another person. Other people are meant to be good gifts in our life. It's not good for us to be alone. We need community. We need community. We're designed for it. But friends, don't go thinking that another person is going to fulfill you. Another person is going to complete you. They're not. Only God can completely fulfill you. Only God can completely complete you. Um, I think about the story in the Old Testament of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Jacob um, was never really loved by his dad the way that his twin brother Esau was. He went far away. Um, he went and lived with relatives and when he did that, he met the most beautiful girl in the world, he thought, Rachel. And he felt like there was nothing, nothing in the world that could compare to his love for Rachel. He became infatuated with her to the point that he did everything needed to try to get her, believing that all of his longings could be fulfilled in her. Sounds like a lot of people today, right? I've been like this myself, not pointing the finger without owning it. And yet, Jacob was deceived Jacob was tricked into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. And a week later, Jacob wanted Rachel still, not being satisfied with Leah, believing Rachel was the one that his heart longed for. And it's a tragedy. Leah ends up becoming a casualty in this whole thing. She knew. She wasn't loved in her husband's eyes. She felt like she wasn't enough. She tried everything to gain his love. She especially tried to do it by having sons. But nothing that she did could fill the hole in her heart. She wanted to be loved 
the prized possession of Jacob. Jacob's obsession was for Rachel, though. And this caused so much pain to Leah. It created crazy tensions in their lives and in their hearts and with their children. Here's the point. Why am I even telling all this story? Here's the point. Jacob was wrong to think that Rachel could fulfill him. And Leah was wrong to think that Jacob could fulfill her. In the end, they both needed God. And both of them wrong and looking for another to do what only God could do. And God had to use crazy suffering in their story to unearth the idol that relationship had become in their life. I wonder, in our hearts and in our stories, is God, has he or is he currently using hard times to reveal to us that our hearts and our hopes have been going after other people too much? Is it tensions, frustrations, endings in relationships, losses in that realm that sometimes is the very thing that God is using to wake us up to the reality that we need him to fulfill us before we need any other person? Third, God was using suffering in their lives to not only identify money, not only identify people as an idol, but third, success as an idol. Success. Generally, the people of Israel had been very successful. If you look at verse three and four and verse nine, he laments the change in their success as a nation. He says, even jackals offer the breast. They're nursed, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. Verse four, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of the mouth for thirst. I I can't even feed my kids anymore. We used to be like at the top and now we can't even feed our own children. Like we're looking at animals and going, they're doing better than we are. A loss of success. Verse nine, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who walked away pierced by the lack of the fruits of their own field. This is a crazy, like, demise of society. Here's the deal. The drug of choice for many, many people today is success. Chasing self-image on the basis of accomplishments. And when success gets stripped from you and suffering comes and all of a sudden that's not there, you're left going, wait, what? And for the people of Israel, this is happening. And sometimes God uses hard times to root out of our hearts an inordinate love for accomplishment. When in your life you go through hardship and you're going through suffering and you feel like you have nothing to bring to God to show him, hey, look what I did. Or you have nothing to bring with others like, hey, look at me. When you feel completely ruined, completely empty, completely worthless or without value. It's sometimes in those moments that God is trying to wake you up to go, it's not about success, it's about me. I think in the Bible of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament, a guy who had every accomplishment, every power, his resume was amazing, his bank accounts were stocked. And despite his crazy success, 
He got a disease that he couldn't cure. He got leprosy and he was dying. He was told to go and see a prophet over in Israel and Naaman brought with him a lot of money. He brought with him letters of recommendation from the king. He comes walking in with a little bit of a strut going, I've got something to offer. I'm gonna use my accomplishment and my success to be able to solve this problem. And yet, Elisha, the prophet that he was told to go see, had his servant go to Naaman and tell Naaman, don't want your money. Don't want your recommendation letters. Just need you to strip down naked, get in the water. Excuse me? (laughs) Naaman was furious. He had great wealth, he had great money, he had great power. He wanted to pay for his healing. He wanted to to earn it. And yet God was using his suffering to teach him something in his heart. It's not about all that other stuff. It's about whether or not you will humble yourself before me. God would heal him if he came humbly, if he set aside his power and he set aside his positions. God would heal him. And this is a lesson that we need to learn. God uses suffering sometimes in our life to humble us, to strip us bare of all the things that we love to hold on to and to go, you know what? It's not about all the little things that you can bring to me. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm proud of you, but that doesn't, that doesn't make you right with me. Stop trying to fill your hearts with all the success. Just come to me in humility and openness and honesty. And sometimes suffering brings to the surface these things that we sometimes need to see. Fourth, hardship revealed another idol in their life and it was the idol of pride. The idol of pride. If you look at verse six, verse 11, 18 and 20, verse six says, for the chastisement of the daughter of the people has become greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Verse 11 says, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and consumed its foundations. Verse 18 describes how they dogged our steps. We couldn't even walk on the streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, the end had come. Verse 20 describes the Lord's breath going out after the anointed, being captured in the pits of the enemy. Pride. It's interesting, um, at the time of Israel, there was no one on earth who could claim a more favored status than Israel. They were God's chosen people. Look, the Old Testament affirmed that. But God's favor does not give people permission to dishonor and disobey his warnings, to just ignore him. Lamentations makes it clear that they thought they were a special people. These are the people who said, under his shadow, we'll live among the nations. Which tells you they had prided themselves in being his special people. They had prided themselves as being the ones who had his favor, but they had neglected hearts of obedience to him. And God's using suffering to go, hey, 
somehow like you, you, you've taken pride in your status with me, but your hearts are far from me. And as he describes how, how God is allowing suffering in their life, it's chastisement from the Lord. It's the Lord waking them up so that they might bring their hearts back to him. Because that's what it's been about the whole time. There's so many of us who fall into the trap of pride. We're really proud of the family we've come from. We feel really proud of being Americans. We feel really proud of being Christians. But what's important is not the status in the eyes of other people, but rather, where is your heart before the Lord? Jonah, in the Old Testament, had fallen into religious idolatry. He was so proud of being a person of God, and yet, when he got told to go and preach the gospel, the good news of God's mercy to the Assyrians, the Israelites' enemies, he was like, heck no. I'm not doing that. He thought that he was more righteous than the Assyrians. And these kept him from obeying. He got on a boat, went the other direction. It wasn't until God used suffering, shipwreck, flying around the ocean, getting eaten by a fish. How's that for a bad day, right? What until God used suffering in his life to wake him up to the fact that he's like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, I've been so stupid. Like I've been wearing this badge of being an Israelite, of being a person of God, like a badge of honor, but at the end of the day, like who am I to pride myself in this? At the end of the day, it's just about God's mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he cries out in the belly of the well. And God uses suffering to wake him up to the fact that he had become a proud and arrogant and hard-hearted person. He had taken God's mercy and counted it at his own personal righteousness rather than a gift of God's grace. So much so that he was using that as a weapon against other people when God wants that same mercy and that same grace to go to all. God was using suffering to wake him up to pride in his own heart. And I wonder, in our own stories, does God not do the same? Does God use suffering in our lives to wake us up to the fact that perhaps we're proud? Number five, and this is the last on our list. Number five is we see that God was unearthing in them not only money, people, success, and pride, but God was unearthing in them power. The idolatry of power. Verse 13 through 16 says, this was for the sin of her prophets and the iniquities of her priest who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people cried to them. Away, away, do not touch. They became fugitives and wanderers. And people said, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself scattered them and will regard them no more. These are leaders of the people, people who were at one time prophets, people who were at one time priests, people who had seats of honor and power and influence and control. And now God has stripped them of all of that. The time of suffering has unearthed that idol. They're wandering around, people looking at them going, away and clean. Power or the sense of power can be 
a very dangerous idol in our lives. It's not bad in and of itself, but it can become inordinate and dangerous for yourself and others if it's not checked. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this lesson the hard way, uh, king of Babylon. And in that time, um, he felt, and he was, most powerful ruler in the world. And yet he had this haunting dream. He couldn't, couldn't get rid of it. It was a great statue, had feet of clay, and it kept being destroyed by a rock that was being thrown at it by supernatural hands. And he called in for the dream to be interpreted. You know, the story perhaps, Daniel comes in and he basically says the statue represents the kingdom of the world and it represents your kingdom and the rock being thrown at it is God and his kingdom. And essentially, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's trying to get your attention, like God's trying to get your attention that all human glory, all human power is nothing compared to God and his reign. Nebuchadnezzar had taken great pride in who he was, the power that he had, all of the accomplishments. And in his arrogance, failed to recognize he wasn't ultimately in control. And God had to use suffering in his life. God gave him another dream. And then eventually he took away the rational function of his mind for a little bit of time. And God had to humble him through circumstance to go, God, ultimately it's not about my control. It's about yours. And I wonder how many of us love control in our lives. We love keeping everything together. We love having everything micromanaged, scheduled, planned. We love having our our life out in front of us and and us feeling like we're in control of this and yet news comes or a circumstance happens and things just blow up. And then suddenly, you don't have control anymore. Is God not using suffering to get our attention? Hey, it's not about you keeping control, it's about me. Is God not using that? to unearth that idol. I close this morning by saying, you can see all these idols revealed in Lamentations 4. And what I've told you this morning is that in lament, the opportunity that you have is to mourn your misplaced trust. Hardship reveals idols. And let me say it more personally as we close this morning. Your hardship reveals your idols. And the question I wanna ask you this morning is what idols are being unearthed in you? Idols are anything that's more important than God to you. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. And I wonder, is God trying to get your attention? Through what you're going through, is God trying to say, hey, 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 I don't take, I don't take pleasure. God does not take pleasure in our pain. But God does use our pain. God does use suffering to wake us up. The scripture over and over says, count it joy when you face sufferings of many kinds because testing of your faith is perseverance, steadfastness. Rejoice in your suffering because ultimately 
As Romans 5 says, suffering can lead to character. There's things that God wants to build in you in the midst of your hardship. And what I'm wondering is, is there an opportunity in the midst of the hardship that you have been through or are currently going through, is there an opportunity to go, God, I've got to come to you with some mourning over areas where I've misplaced my trust. I've got to come to you, God, confessing that there's some idolatry here. And it's not just the ones we went through. You can, you can Google other potential heart idols. There's a list here on the screen of other ways. I mean, there's all kinds of things that your heart can go after. But I'm asking you to be honest. What are the temptations of your heart? Where is your heart tempted to go after something else more than God? The principle of the day is in lament, we bring our idols to God. Mark Vargrup in his book says, lament can shine a spotlight on the things on which we place too much hope. That's what it's meant to do. Could there be a gift in suffering for you? And that it keeps good desires in your life from becoming inordinate? Could there be a gift? Could there be a gift in suffering and that it gives you an opportunity to identify and repent of idols? Could there be a gift? As we close today, I'll just tell you, rather than resist the need for change, would you embrace it? I think sometimes in our life, we are, when we get in the middle of suffering, all we do is say, God, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this, right? And for good reasons. But sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of suffering, praying more for comfort than we do for Christ-likeness. And what I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't pray for comfort. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't pray for, for God to rescue you out of whatever it is you're going through. But what I am saying is in the middle of it, as long as you're in the middle of it, don't miss the opportunity for God not only to change your circumstance, but also to change you. God wants to change you. And I'm asking, where are the places in your heart that you need to change? Rather than resist it, would you embrace it? You have a savior in Jesus who loves you. And in the midst of all that you're going through, as our worship team comes this morning, I just wanna urge you to Jesus. Urge you to a savior who loves you and gave himself for you who knows your heart and the idolatrous ways of it and yet came in love for you. We've been pinning our hopes on the centerpiece of Lamentations 3 as we've gone through this series. I have hope because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. My soul will hope in him. I wanna urge you this morning to a savior. As we sing this song, Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. I just wanna urge you to Jesus because as you identify and name these idols of your heart, you have a savior who's willing to say, I, I see it for, for what you are naming it. But come to me and let me forgive you. Come to me and let me cleanse you. Come to me and let me change you. 
See, as we mourn our misplaced trust, we also at the same time say, oh God, I want to give my whole heart back to you. And God is willing and able to do that. He's willing to give grace. As you confess, he's able to cleanse and to restore. So this morning, focus on Jesus, even as you pray and confess, because he gives grace to those who come. Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.